0: I think the real need is for us to think deeply and hard about what we owe toward our fellow citizens and what we owe to those who are migrants. We want to be welcoming. We want to be compassionate. The church needs to be at the forefront of celebrating the human dignity of all people. But then we want to pray for those in authority and and provide principles that can be used by people in the various government agencies that would nurture a compassionate but also a just system of migration.
1: I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to The Erdcast, an Erdman's podcast about books and the people who make them. Today on the podcast, Mark Amstutz professor of political science at Wheaton College and author of the new book, Just Immigration. The system is broken. That seems to be about the only thing people can agree on when it comes to immigration in the United States. Some parties in the debate emphasize security and the rule of law. Others call for welcome, compassion, and inclusion. In Just Immigration, Mark Amstutz explores the complex landscape of legal and illegal immigration in this country and analyzes various responses from church leaders and denominations. He argues for a communitarian worldview, which accounts for a full range of competing interests while pursuing the common good. And he advises Christians to focus more on moral education and less on advocacy for specific policies. Mark Amstutz, thanks so much for joining us on the URDCast to talk about your new book, Just Immigration. The way I usually open these interviews is to ask an author to describe or distill their book in a sentence. So how would you do that for Just Immigration?
0: the book seeks to describe as simply as possible the major uh, elements of the us immigration system and then it seeks to describe and assess how church groups in the united states have sought to address some of the limitations and shortcomings of of, of that system so it's really a effort to describe and assess the religious engagement of of church groups over the past 10-15 years on what we typically call comprehensive immigration reform.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your own background in international affairs and and how you became interested and eventually decided to write about um, this particular subject?
0: All my work scholarship has been generally in the area of international relations, U.S. foreign policy, and more particularly on the area of ethics and international relations. So my interest in in foreign affairs really was precipitated as a college undergraduate. My goal originally was to become a diplomat, and so in my four decades of teaching at Wheaton College, I have sought to encourage students to uh, consider vocations in public life, and in particular those that deal with subjects of, uh, of third world development, uh, peacekeeping, promoting order, uh, so on and so forth. So how did I get interested in immigration? Basically it happened that I began to notice Christians, and more particularly evangelicals, becoming deeply involved in the topic of immigration reform, and I became concerned when I noticed that church groups were becoming very uh, proactive on specific public policy issues and using scripture to defend those arguments. Uh, For a long time, I, I wrote a book in the 1980s where I critiqued mainline Protestant churches for their excessive political engagement, an engagement that I felt was was appropriate as citizens, but was not justified from a, a theological perspective. You know, in the 80s, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and the National Council of Churches, for example, was, was deeply uh, involved in issues like uh, uh, Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or the U.S. foreign policy towards Central America, and once again this political engagement would have been appropriate as citizens, but they were using their voices as clergymen to in effect justify public policy positions uh, from a religious perspective.
1: What would you say the rules of engagement are then for Christians in politics? And it sounds like you would say it's different for individual congregants on the one hand and clergy and and whole denominations on the other.
0: Yes, I, I I think we need to be very careful when we justify our public policy positions using scripture or theological arguments. The reason for that is that Following a reform theology, I think it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the earth are two very distinct kingdoms, and we don't use the heavenly kingdom to justify tax policy or how we go about doing education policy or immigration reform. Basically, there are two distinct realms, and it's very important that we not conflate the two the rules of of engagement for citizens in a democratic society everybody has the freedom to express their views as citizens clergymen as citizens can participate in whatever way they 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 see fit but when they use the authority the institutional authority of the church to propagate a particular public policy i think that's that's dangerous and counterproductive i think if you have an extreme situation, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in Germany in the 1930s, that's one thing. But for a church simply to take up prudential issues using the authority of Scripture, I think, I think as one has to be very, very careful, lest you undermine the credibility of the church as the body of Christ. I think we need to be far more circumspect. And as I argue in the book... The function of the church on these issues should be to be a moral teacher, not a interest group.
1: So let's talk specifically about immigration. It's commonly remarked that our immigration system is, quote, broken. And I wonder to what extent you would agree with that and say, yes, the, the immigration system in the U.S. is broken or or isn't.
0: Throughout the history of uh, an evolution of U.S. immigration policy, there has always been a gap between enforcement and the laws themselves. The lack of cohesion and effectiveness of of the legal system of, of immigration derives from the fact that there are many competing pressures, demand for cheap labor, for example as well as the push factors of people wanting to come to live and to work in the United States. So because of this, there are many uh, shortcomings that arise in our immigration system. I think there are some things that are done well. There are some things that are not done well. One of the things that I discovered in my research is the unbelievable complexity of the Rules governing immigration, the number of visas and the various agencies that are involved. And so the result is that you have uh, a wide disparity in terms of the uh, expectation to enforce existing rules. I think I would agree that some of the elements of the immigration system uh, are, in fact, uh, broken. I, I think. Uh, What's clear, though, is that when people talk about needing immigration reform because the system is broken, then the consensus immediately breaks down because people have many different conceptions about how to fix this system. Some people want more guest workers, some people want more skilled workers, some people want more family visas for, to unify fa- families. Some people want more refugee admissions. So the result is you have these conflicting pressures, which makes trying to bring about uh, legislation to strengthen uh, and clarify rules. It's an unbelievably challenging task.
1: One of the things that you criticize many church groups for in their response to uh, immigration questions and problems is ignoring or neglecting to actually lay lay out what the system is like. It seems like many want to engage with immigration policy without really understanding what those policies are, which you've said yourself you found really complex. So I wonder if it's possible to do this, if you could sketch out just some of the basics of US immigration policy that the general listener or citizen might not really be aware of.
0: Well, uh, we could talk about this for another another hour, but let me just highlight a few things about, about our immigration system. Uh, United States maintains arguably the most generous immigration system in the world. We admit to legal permanent residency every year more than a million people. Some of these people who get this legal permanent status residence, they have been in the United States unlawfully. But the majority of people who get the LPR status uh, are those that are admitted as immigrants. Every year, the United States, by law, will admit close to 800,000 immigrants. In addition to that, we admit on average 60 to 70,000 refugees. People who are admitted as refugees, uh, from the minute they arrive, they are legal in the United States and they will get an Uh, legal permanent residence, a green card uh, soon after they arrive and then they can begin working. The other thing uh, about our system is that although we have given very little encouragement to unskilled workers, the demand for unskilled workers is such that many people cross the southern border unlawfully or come here through visas and and then overstay their visas and then simply work uh, as unskilled workers. Many of them uh, work uh, under the table, so to speak, living in the shadows. And so, we, one of the problems that we have is that we have roughly 11 and a half million undocumented aliens who are living here. Many of them have been here for five or ten years, and some of them are married, have children who are U.S. citizens. So we have uh, a generous system. Once people are here, we bend over backwards through our immigration court systems to uh, give them uh, due process. Anyway, those are some of the... Things that I would I would stress: our system is a generous system. Secondly, it encourages uh, legal compliance through immigration courts. We give due process protections uh, to all people who are in the United States residing. We treat them with dignity, uh, and thirdly, we give. Uh, priority to families.
1: One of the things that you emphasize throughout the book is that the the current immigration system and also many of the the problems with it, or the potential problems, revolve around competing interests. So that, for instance, undocumented aliens who are working low-skilled jobs that doesn't occur in a vacuum. That that may perhaps you know take away jobs from unskilled workers who are citizens who have legal status, and and that's not an uncommon, I think, argument for you know stricter enforcement that we hear in the national dialogue. But for you, that that relates to a kind of worldview that you that you are bringing to. To this debate, to this issue, uh, and that's something that you call communitarianism. And then, on the other hand, there's there's a worldview that you call cosmopolitanism. And these are, if if they're not necessarily competing, they're at least potentially, you know, in tension. They're contrasting at several points. So, could you take both of those terms and uh, just for starters define them um, when you use those terms, communitarianism? and cosmopolitanism, what do those each refer to?
0: The, the word communitarian uh, simply means that to be fully human, we engage as, as as social persons, and we do so in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, uh, in our cities, in our countries. And the communitarian perspective simply suggests that That these particular associations, these particular affiliations that we make uh, are important to our human existence. So a communitarian perspective suggests that my denomination, my church, my family, my college, all these things have a moral legitimacy in the world in which we live. Nation states are manifestations of a communitarian perspective. They're socially constructed. There's nothing that's inherent in them, but when you create a state like South Sudan, for example, the most recent member of the United Nations, the creation and justification of these these particular communities that we call nation states have legitimacy. So. One way of thinking about the communitarian perspective is just that it's a particularistic, or I don't want to say nationalistic, uh, but but it's it celebrates the particular affiliations that human beings have. In contrast, the cosmopolitan perspective, which might be also turned a more globalist perspective, is one that de-emphasizes these particular affiliations and emphasizes the universality of our bonds. All human beings are entitled to dignity. All human beings are equal. And from a Christian perspective, we affirm those central truths that all people are created in God's image. And whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a Czech or a German or a Zimbabwean, no matter what your nationality or what your social class, you're entitled to dignity. So the cosmopolitan perspective gives emphasis to the globalist or the universal conception of a of a world as a as a coherent moral community. It's it's an old idea. The cynics uh, and the Stoics uh, in ancient times celebrated the universality of reason and, and how we were all part of a unified cosmos. And Christians, many Christians now have jumped on the cosmopolitan bandwagon because, to some extent, the the church is a global society. and And in that sense, all human beings are Part of a world that God has created.
1: I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to the ERDcast. My conversation with Mark Amstutz about just immigration continues in a moment. For the next two weeks, you can order Just Immigration at 30% off. Click the link in the episode notes and use the code IMMIGRATION. So you form your thought uh, in this book on the foundation of communitarianism. You, you embrace that as, as a worldview for thinking about politics and international relations, um, and you, you really endorse that and so i'm I'm wondering why you why you opt for that worldview when you're thinking about politics and international relations? Why is that more conducive to to justice
0: as a scholar of international relations, I begin not with some abstract philosophical conception of the world, but I begin with the world as it is and so the current constitutional structure of the world the world is divided into sovereign independent equal states that's not a theological or a moral argument it's just an empirical one the world has changed we had empires in the medieval period and in ancient times we had city states and and you know i'm not defending morally the fractured, decentralized global system. I'm simply saying that's the way the system is. And if you want to moralize about immigration or about refugees, you have to begin with where the world is. My argument is, in effect, empirical rather than normative at that point.
1: And so as a communitarian, but as someone who acknowledges you know, the cosmopolitan elements of Christianity where you know we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God and in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. How then does a communitarian reconcile that worldview with the cosmopolitan elements of Christianity?
0: Well, I think we are members, we have citizenship in two kingdoms. And we have citizenship in the temporal realm, in the particular communities where we live, but we also have citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, and I I think they can't be fully reconciled because the two are two different realms. What is important for Christians, though, is to recognize this divided and separate loyalty that we have first to the kingdom of Christ, and then secondly to our particular communities where we serve, and each one, we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. So I'm not sure that reconciliation is so much the appropriate uh, approach here. What's important is the understanding that the different realms have different obligations and different ethics. The ethic for the universal community is a ethic of love and compassion and welcoming. But the ethic of particular communities is, is more restrictive. There are boundaries. In order to have a community, you need uh, borders. So the, t- the town of Wheaton, where I live, uh, it ha- has its own library, has its own police force, but we don't. We may support neighboring towns in dealing with fires or, or or police protection, but the taxes that make possible the services in the town where I live come from the residents of that particular town. In the same way, the endowment of Wheaton College is used for the members of the Wheaton community. We don't share our endowment with other institutions. So that's the logic. You have uh, legitimate obligations to two distinct realms, to the universal community, but also to your own.
1: What happens then if we start applying communitarian logic to uh, immigration policy? What What are some of the concerns that a communitarian immigration policy would be guided by? Some of
0: the the problems that arise when we don't attend to the particular rules within a a, a society, the, the disregard of law. So the rule of law is central to democratic uh, government and its enforcement. Uh, there's always obviously some level of hypocrisy, some level of non-compliance with rules. What you want to try to do always is to Try to make sure that the laws and the rules and the practices are somewhat coherent and followed. We want people who immigrate to come here legally. And we want people who come to work to do so with valid visas. When you have non compliance, it wrecks the fabric of a society. And so One of the reasons why immigration is an important issue is the widespread uh, divergence of of compliance on core issues, the use of faulty documentation to justify work or or working in a sort of informal, illegal economy. Uh, These issues, I think, uh, are important because they undermine the Uh, fabric of society.
1: So I I think that a a common refrain from many in the church who advocate for immigration reform is the biblical Old Testament command uh, to welcome the stranger. Many who advocate for immigration reform from a Christian perspective are really arguing for you know, compassion, for people who are in need, who are suffering. So how would you respond to to that concern while still holding a communitarian uh, perspective?
0: I'm currently teaching a course on, on this subject, and one of the points that I made the other day in, in class was that that anybody who addresses this topic seriously uh, is going to face a tension between their heart and their mind. So when you think of the mind, I'm thinking of the laws, the rules, the government, citizenship, and that might be called a a vertical relationship between people and the state, people and government. Then there's the horizontal relationship where you meet people as neighbors, as human beings, as, as fellow citizens. Uh, migrants, there's always an inherent tension between when you meet somebody who is unlawful. I, I I remember going to an immigration court hearing a year and a half or so ago in downtown Chicago, and there was an 11-year-old girl, and she had crossed the Rio Grande in Texas, and the vulnerability of that little girl, what a terrible situation compassion. I felt unbelievable compassion at that moment for that little girl. But I also felt anger at the fact that parents would have allowed her and encouraged her and had paid presumably some coyote, somebody to help get her across the border unlawfully. I I felt somebody was manipulating the system. And so my point, I guess, would be that churches need to be very careful to balance their compassion of welcoming strangers with the message of how to reconcile obligations toward justice toward other citizens, but also justice toward people who are waiting patiently to come here in a legal way. So the, the problem for for easy answers is that you end up complicating and making uh situations more difficult for other members who would like to migrate to the United States. In 2015, some 65,000 undocumented minors arrived in the United States, in California and Texas, uh, and this required that the Homeland Security Department of Homeland Security shift resources to meet the needs of these minors. Minors take precedence over over adults and um, and rightly so but the but the outcome of this was that they took money and resources that would have gone toward the refugee program and then they shifted them toward undocumented minors and the the challenge here is how can the government ad- advance justice toward all migrants undocumented minors refugees legal migrants and unlawful migrants as well this is why the reconciling of competing interests among groups is is so difficult and is a matter of justice we want the government to act justly
1: so one one particular situation that that arises and is often covered in the news and and this is one case where christian clergy kind of often come to the forefront in the national discussion on immigration. Say there's someone who's in the in the country without authorization. Maybe they overstayed a visa, maybe they crossed illegally years ago. They've kind of put down roots in a community, they've got a family here, maybe kids who are citizens or they've married a spouse who's a citizen. And and now, you know, ICE has knocked on their door and they're in deportation hearings. And so, like I mentioned, often you know this is where a, a pastor or a bishop might come out and really advocate for their release. I'm not going to ask you for a specific policy recommendation here or a decision that, that you would recommend a judge would make. I'm more interested in, in asking, according to the terms of your book, how a Christian should think about that situation. What are the concerns that a Christian should be mindful of in that situation
0: well one one thought it's not a pleasant one but one of the things that happens when when an illegal act is committed is that the consequences of that act can be long-term and and so I think it's very difficult to address issues where you have people who have been living here for 10 or 15 years they're married they have children and i think that our immigration courts bend over backwards to try to reconcile the demands of justice with the rule of law that's why we have uh, a wide variety of of practices some immig- immigration judges are more compassionate than others but uh, at some point they need to act how should the church think about this? How should Christians think about these issues where you have a legacy uh, of, of prior illegal act? There needs to be compassion toward, for example, toward minors that were brought here by parents unlawfully years ago. I, I don't think anybody wants to harm or do do something that would compromise human dignity for for minors, but when you have a situation that currently dates back to uh, an offense that was committed 10, 15 years ago, I think simply for the church to simply say be compassionate is not the full story, because political communities need to be credible and they need to follow the rule of law, and so somebody, for example, who committed an offense— that was undetected 10 years ago. And it comes to the knowledge of, of authorities. Is, is it right for a pastor to say, well, let's just forget about that? I, I think the pastor is a shepherd of the flock, but he's not a authorized agent of the state. And so once again, I come back to this Lutheran dichotomy of two kingdoms. And and we need to honor the distinction of the two realms. There will never be a full reconciliation, a full resolution of that. But uh, I guess I would simply say that, that unlawful acts can have immediate consequences. But in the case of immigration, you have situations where people who have are facing difficulties today because of an offense that they committed years ago. The news is filled with these kinds of heart-wrenching stories, and my suggestion is that clergy need to be careful not just to automatically jump on one bandwagon, assuming that, that these officials in the immigration system are any less concerned with justice and with the kingdom of Christ. There are many law-abiding. I have students who are working in the consular system around the world. I have others that are involved in federal positions in government, and, and I'm sure that every day they face decisions that are unbelievably difficult morally, but they're tasked with representing the interests of the state and the government.
1: You quote a, a segment from a book by uh, Paul Ramsey, who is a Christian ethicist, where, where Ramsey says, Christian political ethics cannot say what should or must be done, so I, i.e. should not make specific policy recommendations, but only what may be done. Um, and so I wonder how, how you differentiate between those and maybe what that looks like uh, concretely in, in immigration. Where's an instance where the church might speak up and say, the government really may not do this? There's there's an ethical issue here.
0: Churches have a comparative advantage. The Christian community has a comparative advantage in understanding the importance of, of core biblical moral norms. And they should use those norms to try to Show how those norms apply to the full range of migrant challenges. I think simply to pick and choose a few norms, like being compassionate or hospitable, uh, that's appropriate, but it's incomplete because the Bible also is a book that legitimizes the institution of government as an agency for the maintenance of order and the punishment of wrongdoing. And so what I think that the church the churches can contribute in an important way to the moral debate, then the issue is how do we go about teaching the laity? How do we go about helping to encourage a analysis and reflection that can yield greater insights about how to reconcile these competing obligations and competing interests. I don't think that the church knows enough about immigration to give advice on how many skilled workers should be admitted or whether Mm -hmm. the refugees of Syria should be admitted as opposed to the refugees of Eritrea. The the issue of even how many... uh, refugees should be admitted. I find that a, a very, very challenging question. Simply more refugees is is not an answer. So should we admit 100,000, 200,000, 300,000? I don't know. And I'm not sure that members of Congress know they have different views on that. But but certainly I doubt that the church has has specific knowledge of that. What the church can do and should do is to carry out careful studies that illuminate the tension between obligations to the city of God and to the city of man, to the state and to to the church.
1: Obviously, we have a new administration with different immigration agendas, so what questions do you anticipate will arise over the next four years regarding immigration policy? and? And how would you like Christians to, to think about those?
0: Uh, Donald Trump is president because he had the courage to state that uh, illegal immigration was a problem. And then he made the really rather simple statement that I think resonates with a lot of people, that if you don't have borders, you can't have a country. This gets back to the communitarian perspective that, that people are members of particular societies and they want to make sure that, that members in their society are not being harmed by transnational movements of, of money and people will probably, at some point, they'll attempt to make some modifications to bolster compliance with existing laws. But I would hope that we would also have a a debate and a discussion on, are the existing rules and existing policies legitimate? The notion that somehow building a wall is going to solve the problem, I don't think that's true at all. Nor do I think that simply restricting uh, refugees from particular countries uh, is going to make our country more secure. I think the real need is for us to think deeply and hard about what we owe toward our fellow citizens and what we owe to those who are migrants. We want to be welcoming, we want to be compassionate, the church needs to be at the forefront of celebrating the human dignity of all people, but then we want to pray for those in authority and, and provide principles that can be used by people in the various government agencies that would nurture a compassionate but also a just system of migration.
1: Mark Amstutz, thanks for talking to us today on the Erdcast about your new book, Just Immigration. Mark Amstutz is professor of political science at Wheaton College and author of the new book, Just Immigration. Don't forget, you can order the book at 30% off when you use the code immigration in the ErdWord store. Thanks for listening to the Erdcast. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, make sure to leave us a good review. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode, an interview with Richard Bauckham about Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Until then, read good books and show some love to the people who make them.